Welcome to Mortgage Space. I'm your host, Alan Medeiros, and today we have an awesome opportunity to talk with somebody that is not only a good friend, but an amazing person at what he does. This is Mr. Andrew McCormack with Sun Power by Sun Solar. And he is uh, not only the best person I could find, but also somebody just really studies his craft. And I've been so impressed by his knowledge and not only his product, but other products that are out in the marketplace and really focusing his attention on educating the consumer about solar, solar products, renewable energy in long term, and kind of have a vision for what it is that our community, our country is doing to make us more um, green, I guess the best way to look at it. And uh, from what I understand, Andrew's been in the industry for nearly five years and has helped hundreds of families really become uh, independent of their PG&E bills and other things like that locally. So without any further ado, Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Alan. So today I have kind of a written agenda. It's not something that I, I think we need to follow directly to the script, but I do want to have some high points covered. And uh, with that said, I want you to just go ahead and tell me a little bit more about what you do and how you do it. I gave a brief introduction, but you'll probably do it a little bit better. Yeah, so I work for Sun Power by Sun Solar, and our goal is to educate our customers on the highest quality product uh, and all the different ways to pay for it. Uh, a lot of people focus on just how to pay for their product without knowing what product they have. So uh, first off, find out what product you have, and then let's in detail find out how to pay for it, whether it's a cash transaction, a fixed price lease program, or a financed purchase. Okay. so. We're gonna get into the differences and more specifics in those types of uh, ways of paying for it. But what is the first thing that you do before going out to meet with a homeowner about solar? The very first thing we do is assess their current PG&E usage, uh, their rate plan, what they're paying for PG&E, uh, and, and seeing where solar fits into that mix for them. Uh, right now, I would say about 80% of residential homeowners end up being able to do solar or it making financial sense. Uh, when I started four and a half, five years ago, it was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of every other person, 50% of people, uh, solar actually made sense for them. And that's because of the, the rate increases in PG&E. PG&E's gone up anywhere from 40 to 60%, depending on where you are in the rate structures. Uh, so that alone has made solar make a lot more sense. So the impact of energy cost increases have really taken your product and offering and made it more valuable. Yes, it's brought a lot more people into the solar market. Now, you and I have had discussions outside of the podcast about just the sheer fact that the country is going towards renewable energy and you know efficiencies in green energy, if you will. Uh, is there a law coming into play that's going to affect Californians? Uh, new homes are going to have a small requirement for solar. Um, that is more to reduce their um, energy impact, their footprint, than it is to offset energy bills. Uh, most of those homes will still have an energy bill, so they'll need either a larger than minimum when they're built or they'll need a retrofit after construction. And when you say retrofit after construction, what does that mean? It means adding panels to what's already been there. Uh, most builders are doing somewhere between eight and 12 panels, but the average house is gonna need somewhere between 21 and, and 24 panels. Uh, pool, electric car, all those things, now you're talking 30, 32, 34 panels. So when you go out to visit with a 
homeowner, you're looking at suitability too, right, for their energy usage, but also what it is that they do with their energy? Yes. So I remember when you were consulting our family about it, you asked, do you want to cover your expenses or do you want to live comfortably? Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a different way of looking at it because I know that our family is very frugal in the way that we use energy. We noticed that our peak months were typically going to be the June, July, August, and portion of September. But during the off months, our bills went down but the one thing I did notice is that our gas bill went up. So I still had a bill from PG&E because our gas is, is through them, but it was, it was definitely diminished as far as cost. And when you made the recommendation for additional panels, you did so because I think you saw that there were certain types of uh, usages that were common and your baseline usage was such that it benefited you by adding a couple more panels. Now, when we made that decision, I wasn't sure exactly what was going to happen and I think a lot of homeowners and people that are considering solar don't know because they haven't had experience with it. Nor have they really paid a lot of attention to their bills. They just kind of, you know, see the pg and bill come in and kind of groan about it because they know it's going to be a big bill. But they don't understand the tiering system and how time of use may be affecting, you know, those types of, of tiers and costs per kilowatt hour. and it's very dynamic. It seems like it's changing all the time. Uh, what I've noticed is that they'll make adjustments and then just notify you in some type of publication that says your new tier will be this with this amount of usage and then the new, and then they give you this option of switching to a different type of usage. What is that? Have you seen what I'm talking about come out in mailers? Yeah, so PG&E is constantly changing their rate structures based on what's going to be their most profitable situation. When is when is the grid at the the highest demand and we need to charge more then to push demand into when it is less uh, when when there's less consumption uh, on the grid. So you're seeing them constantly, it's a moving target for them as people come on the grid, they're seeing a, less of a draw early in the afternoon and now a heavier draw late in the evening as everybody comes off, uh, their solar systems start to shut off. So now they need to make sure that less people are on the grid at that time so they charge more directing behavior out of those times. Is it your experience that the solar usage actually does help PG&E as far as dispersion of, of use? Yeah, there was, um, if you think back to, to 2001, 2002, there was a lot of rolling blackouts and brownouts. Uh, it was because the grid was on those peak times, which was three or four hours, 30 times a year in the summer, the demand was in excess of 100% of production. Uh -huh. So they had to pull people back off of the grid. What solar does on homes for PG&E is it, it allowed them not to build a bunch of new power plants for 30 days a year of use. It was a, a, bad, a bad expenditure for them. So everybody who has solar on their roof is now a net exporter during those high demand hours. So I think we're somewhere around 7% of homes in California have solar right now. So you can take those 7% off the grid during those three hours. And now also they're putting back to the grid. So they made a large net effect on the grid, uh, which saved PG&E a lot of money, which in turn uh, is allowing customers to save a lot of money. 
Now you mentioned seven percent. That's all that has had buy-in in solar. Yeah, it uh, we it was two summers ago. We hit five percent. I think we're somewhere around seven percent. There's there's still a lot of uh, unknown and fear and doubt for consumers. Uh, then a lot of people only own their homes for three or four years, and they move on. They might work in an industry where they get relocated. Uh, making a long-term decision is a little bit tougher. Uh, then there's been some things that have happened in the industry that have scared some people off. But as we see PG&E continue to increase, that risk is going to get lower, that decision is going to become easier. So your industry is somewhat dynamic in the sense that it is changing, right? And it's it's morphing itself in, in what I call adjusting to the market, right? So. One of the questions I have for you is, have you studied the evolution of what solar has done from the time of its inception and really true buy-in in California? Yes, so if, if you go back to about 10 years ago, the only way you could do solar is if you paid cash for it. So you could take a personal loan and pay cash for it. Uh, you could take a home equity loan and then pay cash for it. Where solar really uh, hit the mainstream is when the banks got involved. Uh, it first started with uh, a, a change in the solar ITC, which is the investment tax credit that allowed a third party to collect the tax credit. So in 2009, leasing was born where you didn't necessarily have to go out and get that loan. You didn't have to um, take on that financial burden on your own credit report. You could use um, a third party. Uh, sort of as a uh, an energy provider but it was so new there were some challenges there with that then banks started to get more heavily involved in lending on a purchase uh, to allow somebody to take a personal loan of a higher amount knowing that they're more likely to pay it back because it's offsetting a PG&E bill but it was still personal debt a non-transferable financing vehicle uh, where things really exploded was about two years ago when uh, leasing and purchasing together now became fully transferable. So you could get a purchase loan for anywhere from five to 20 years, but if you only used half of that loan, you weren't responsible to pay the rest back as long as the person buying your house agreed to pay the remaining term of that loan. So it became one of as far as I know, it might be the only transferable financing vehicle other than uh, a car lease, which you, you can sometimes transfer a car lease uh, from one person to another. So I personally have not heard about the purchase option with a transferable loan, perhaps because I haven't seen it. It's not to say that it doesn't exist. There are a lot of things that exist that I don't have personal experience. That's why we have educators like you on the on the podcast. So what you're seeing there, Alan, is it's only two years old. So you're just now gonna start seeing, most people don't sign up for a solar agreement and then sell their house six months later. Sure. It's They have a three or four year horizon. You're gonna start seeing in the next two and a half, or in the next six months, to two years, you're gonna to start to see these flood in as those people uh, who made the decision two and a half, three years ago are starting to sell their house and move. Yeah, and I think that that's something that we as a lending community will then adjust accordingly because right now there are guidelines and we'll discuss this a little bit later in the podcast for Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac 
and we have some guidance for VA, but there's no written guidance for FHA and USDA at this time. It kind of tells you that when banks are doing loans for property, something that becomes attached to the property physically and has some type of requirement for repayment becomes something they have to adjust for. Because it's not that a consumer doesn't want to purchase something, but if financing is not readily available, it becomes a more difficult process to purchase property, which can actually hurt a real estate market as well. So we're seeing that I've noticed some flexibility. I think that solar companies in general have been adjusting and working towards making it much more user-friendly to make sure that the property can be transferred and they can continue to get the benefits of the solar and that product itself for the long term. So what do you think the, the value add is for a homeowner or potential buyer uh, by having solar on the property? Trying to simplify it as much as possible is the value of solar is is replacing the high cost per unit that PG&E is charging you for kilowatt hours right now. So a kilowatt hour is that one consumable unit that PG&E charges you for, um, much like a gallon of gas. So a kilowatt hour is PG&E's version of a gallon of gas. And it has a market value the same way a gallon of gas has a market value. So what solar does is it, it one way or another, it gives you an opportunity to lower or replace that cost per kilowatt hour. And as I'll talk about later, lock it in. Lock it in at today's price and insulate your PG&E bill against inflation for as long as that system is working on your roof. So you bring up a point right now that I think is a question to bring up. So as long as the solar system is on your roof and it's functioning, how do we guarantee that? Yeah, so that, that's where, uh, in, in my introduction, the equipment you choose is incredibly important to making sure that uh, your system is working for the term of your financial decision that you're making. Uh, over the last eight years, a lot of people have made decisions uh, on solar, thinking that all solar is created equal. And they go for the cheapest solar they can find. Well. Now it's eight years later and that solar is doing 50 to 60% of what it was supposed to and the warranty doesn't back it the way they thought it does. So really important to make the right decision and an informed decision when it comes to your equipment, your equipment's lifespan and your equipment's warranty to make sure that you're not back paying PG&E's high rate per kilowatt hour in seven, eight years. So in that instance, you can't unring the bell. Some of these people have purchased solar or leased solar and maybe didn't get what they thought they were getting. Five, seven, eight years down the road, they find out that it's underproducing or not providing uh, what they had been promised, if you will. And now they're trying to sell a property. This, is a, this could be potentially a deterrent from somebody purchasing that property. What are common, I guess, experiences that people may be having, can they remove the panels? Can they have them transferred to another residence? What, what is, I'm sure it's different with every company, yep. but for generic purposes, have you seen a particular course of action that people take? Most, most agreements are written to be uh, lived out to the, to the end of their agreement. If there's a buyout of some kind, it's usually not in your favor, and it's usually, you usually give up the best benefits of what you signed up for 
uh, and they're trying to get it off their liability. Um, really, we, we call this, you only get uh, one chance to do solar right. You don't get a do-over. Um, so after the fact, for the most part, you're gonna live out the agreement. If it's not producing, you can augment. Uh, there, there are ways to get more power, uh, but doing the decision right from the beginning is the most important part. So in those situations, as you say, augment, that mean, meaning adding more panels, maybe redoing systems, can you actually have a co, I guess, producing system? Yeah, so it just becomes a separate circuit in your electrical box and you can add a new standalone system to an existing system if that system was, uh, let's just for easy math, a 10 panel system and it's missing 30%, then you come in and you add a three panel system uh, to augment that difference. But scale that up to, to any 30, 40, 50 panel system and, and you're, you might be removing stuff that's not working or you might just be putting it on another roof plane. So let's talk about some considerations. You just talked about the production and you know 10, 10 panels and then adding additional three to increase that 30% for percentage uh, Excel, illustrations. How does suitability of the property affect your ability to put solar on a property? Uh, there, there's a lot of factors that go into that. So roof age. Uh, at Sun Power by Sun Solar, we want you to, to have seven to ten years of, of roof life. We're going to tell you if you don't so you can make that informed decision in the future that yeah I might have to spend fifteen hundred dollars to have these panels lifted when I get my roof redone. Um, a lot of companies just come in and put solar on the roof and, and just make sure it doesn't leak. But a year and a half later, you've got to pay that cost to, to remove the panels and, and have it re-roofed. Um, older neighborhoods versus newer neighborhoods, uh, roofs tend to be a lot more cut up and, and more difficult to put panels on in older neighborhoods. And then older neighborhoods have really established uh, trees around uh, really old growth that's why you pick those old neighborhoods. So you're not wanting to cut down a 50-year-old tree just to save $60 on your PG&E bill. Uh, roof direction, uh, aesthetics, those are all things that go into making that feasibility of, of whether the solar is going to make sense for a homeowner. So when you go out to a site, you're actually doing some pre-work to find out some information about whether or not the solar panels will be effective based off location suitability of the roof and other things, is that correct? Yeah, Google Earth is excellent for, for giving us a snapshot of what we're looking at. We can see if there's a big tree in the path of the sun. We can see the direction that the roof faces. We can see what we're working with. We can even tell within a couple years the age of a roof using street view and, and uh, the, the above view of Google Earth. So that's a big tool for you, yes. I'm assuming. So let's talk now about how the ownership of panels versus a lease affects future plans for a home. Do you have that discussion with consumers prior to putting solar on a property? Yeah, so if, if somebody's gonna be selling their house in six months, solar in general isn't going to help them. Um, it, it's probably going to deter them, or be a deterrent in the sale of their home. At that point, they haven't really seen any benefit and now the person buying their house is taking on uh, the majority of their decision. So we wanna know, 
how long are you planning on staying? And as long as somebody's planning on staying around two years, it's probably going to make sense for them to do something. Um, then we look at a cash purchase versus finance versus lease to find out which one is best for that homeowner. And one of the things that I love about working for Sun Power by Sun Solar is I get to offer the best equipment, number one. Sun Power equipment, it's 40 years, it's heat proof, it's corrosion proof, uh, and it's a one product solution. They make all of their product. Once we get that out of the way, then I can figure out, okay, are you a cash customer? And not everybody's a cash customer. And the thing checks that I like to use there are, okay, where is this cash coming from that you're gonna make this decision with? Somebody says, well, I have it in an account. Okay, is that your emergency money? Okay. If it's your emergency money, you shouldn't tie it up on your roof. Unlike a new pickup truck, you can't go and get a title loan on a solar system. So your emergency money is on the roof, 12 months later you have an emergency, you don't have access to your emergency money. Okay, well, I'm gonna take out a home equity loan on my house. Okay, so you're still a cash customer, but you're bringing the equity from your home. Creates a couple issues. There's now, that is now a, an equity lien on your house. You're using your home's value to buy that solar system. Again, going back to emergency money. A lot of people's equity in their home is their emergency money. And once it's up on the roof, you can't use it for an emergency. Second drawback is if you sell the house, you have to pay off that home equity loan and solar doesn't add much, if any, value to your home. So I wanna see you be in the house for at least six or seven years and pay down that home equity loan aggressively so that six or seven years, if you leave, you, you are at least gonna be in a good position. My goal is always to leave my customers in the best position I can, whether it's two years from now or 15 years from now. So we've established now that they, the money's sitting in a bank account, they've got their investments, they've got their emergency money, it's just money that's doing nothing for them. Great, are you gonna be in this house six to seven years? Yes, we're not going anywhere. They're taking on a little bit of risk that they might decide to move but they're gonna see a big reward in seven, eight, nine, ten years. So we've identified emergency money, probably not a cash customer, cash lying around, probably a cash customer. So once we've crossed that off, there, we can move on to a purchase agreement, and that's where the new transferable financing comes in. So with transferable financing, you agree to a loan term from anywhere from five, 10, 15, or 20 years, each loan term has its own benefit. A five-year loan, you're gonna have a much higher payment, but you're gonna be out from underneath it sooner. We see a lot of people choose the 10-year because it's a little bit less than their PG&E bill. They're probably gonna be there 10 years, but if they're not, the number's not scary to transfer to somebody else for the remaining five years. 15 years, you're starting to see a little bit cash flow. You're seeing savings versus PG&E. You're putting some money back in your own pocket. And then 20-year financing, you're just saying, I want to lower my bill. I don't mind paying for 20 years. I might be here for 10 years. I'm gonna transfer the remaining 10 years, but I wanna see money in my pocket for the time that I'm here. But the biggest benefit two years ago is these loans became fully transferable. You need to make sure the lender that you choose is transferable because you don't wanna move in five years and still be paying on that loan. Then we transfer into uh, transition into fixed price leasing.
Fixed price leasing is for the person that doesn't want to worry about their equipment. They don't want ownership. They just want to lower their bill. They want to pay the same amount every month for the next 20 years. And when it comes to leasing, I recommend fixed price. PG&E is going to continue to increase and a lot of lease agreements are going to continue to increase. When you get fixed price, purchase and lease on 20 years become approximately the same price. And you can decide based on do I want payment flexibility or do I want no worry, I want that I want my energy provider to take care of everything. So in fixed price leasing, that is just one of the, the two most common types of ways of getting solar on the property, right? What happens at the term of the lease end? Every, every lender's different um, on, on how they do their lease program exits. Some lease programs with a 3% escalator, they've taken so much money from you for, the, for their system over the 20 years, it's 70% more by the end. It's increased 2.9% every year. It's a dollar buyout. Absolutely, it should be a dollar buyout because they've taken so much money from you over the 20 years. Then some other lease programs, including SunPower's lease program, have exit strategies built in that are beneficial to the company and they're beneficial to uh, the homeowner. So SunPower's lease, for example, um, it can be removed from your roof or it can be bought out anytime you do a title transfer or you can continue month to month. Ultimately, at the end of 20 years, SunPower is financially responsible to remove the equipment from your roof. So knowing that, you have some, some leverage there, end your agreement, and potentially negotiate some form of ownership at the end of 20 years once you've ended your agreement. So since a lot of people have not gotten to maturity of this, there could be a time where we're going to see perhaps adjustments in what people are doing at the end of leases, meaning maybe there's new product out there, potentially different ways of still subsidizing or potentially decreasing their expenses for costs, right, for energy consumption. One of the things that I've just been thinking about personally and also as a family is considerations long-term for expenses, right? And this is one way to mitigate expense is reducing their, your overall inflationary expense. So from what I'm hearing, just in summary, solar itself is a good hedge against inflation for cost for, for power. Yes. And it does protect you for a specified time. But I'm sure that as a country, as a community, as, you know, as consumers, there will be other solutions that will continue to come up in the future, as well as technology improvements. So moving forward, what are some obstacles that you have faced as a rep uh, when people are trying to sell their properties and they have solar on it and maybe identify the differences between those that have financed solar versus those that have leasing solar programs we're only on we're only on about seven percent of homes and and i would say of those seven percent maybe two and a half three percent have changed hands so you're talking about out of every hundred real estate transactions, single family residences that are eligible for solar, only three out of a hundred that real estate agents are dealing with are transferring. So it's not something they're dealing with every day. It's not their expertise. 
So when challenges arise during escrow, they're not quite sure what to do. And I recommend that all my customers, when they sell their house, they have their agent, the buyer's agent, and the escrow communicate with me any questions they have and treat solar accordingly. Try to have everything handled 15 days before closing, if possible, because you just don't know what's going to happen along the way. But the opposite is happening. Nobody wants to deal with it because they're not dealing with it every day. So it ends up being the last thing that's being dealt with. And it's being dealt with at the 12th hour um, on, on the finish line. Well, that's when escrows get derailed. Handle the solar ahead of time, get it done, make it the first thing that you deal with and cross it off the list. Uh, most difficult thing, you always wanna cross it off first. Yeah, one of the things that I've advised agents and real estate professionals in general before taking and publicizing that listing, do your homework on any type of liens that may be against a property, any type of things that need to be addressed as it pertains to property, and solar is a big one if it's on the property itself. And it's really just about exploring it, just asking questions, because I think you can probably help mitigate a lot of the stress if you can just get the question answered early enough because there's no way that you possibly would know that somebody that you helped two years ago is selling their house now unless you happen to just drive down the street <laughs> and see a sign, right? Yes. So it's very difficult to proactively push forward to getting people to get this information. They need to be proactive. They need to be doing their due diligence to make sure that it's something that can be smooth for that potential buyer. Correct? What I've typically seen is everybody thinks somebody else is handling it. Mm. So as the homeowner selling your home, assume that nobody's handling it. And every day follow up until you know that it's been taken care of and your transaction will go smoothly. Everybody who's followed that advice of assuming that nobody else is handling it, 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 they've had a smooth transfer, they've had a smooth transition. The situations where everybody assumes somebody else is handling it, those are the ones that get fumbled at the finish line. Yeah, and that's a, a bad fumble. Yeah. Fourth quarter, a minute left. Yes. <laughs> at the goal line, Yes. everybody wants to close and everybody wants to, and to the, win. And that's when everybody gets frustrated because they think the solar was the problem. If you handle it properly from the beginning and give it the attention it needs, the solar should not be a problem. Absolutely. So I wanna go ahead and just ask in terms of what may have happened in the past versus currently, is there a lien on the property for solar? Yeah, so when, when leasing first, well, let's go back to, to how you could do solar to begin with. So if you use a home equity line of credit or a, a second mortgage to buy your solar, it's secured by a, an equity lien on your home. That bank has a financial interest in your home until you've paid it off. Then leasing came out and uh, there was a decision that allowed a third party to collect the solar investment tax credit on the homeowner's behalf. Banks didn't know how to collateralize that. They didn't know how to say, okay, we're gonna lend you the $60,000 you need for your solar system, but we need to make sure you're gonna get us, we're gonna get paid back. So they put a $60,000 hard equity lien on your house. And that lien didn't diminish as payments went on. They realized very quickly that this was a huge obstacle 
for selling homes. Uh, and, and they also realized very quickly that it wasn't needed. If a solar system is priced properly, somebody isn't going to walk away from their solar payment that's 40 to 60% less than PG&E to go back to paying PG&E. So the risk of, of non-payment wasn't there the way they thought it was. Somewhere around 2011, 2012, most leasing companies and most solar financing companies abandoned equity liens altogether, and they moved to using a vehicle called a UCC filing. Commonly referred to as a fixture filing, it separates the equipment from the house. Without it, the moment the equipment is installed on the roof, it becomes part of the house. This is not an equity position. Uh, it's often referred to or misled as being a lien in the, in the equity sense that they have right to my property, they have right to my home. All this UCC filing does is it separates the panels from your house and protects the lender's interest in those panels so that they can come and take those panels if they ever need to. It also serves another purpose that prevents the house from being sold out from underneath the solar system. Somebody buys a house, they have this equipment on their roof, they're getting the power, and uh, John Smith moved to Atlanta and he's making the payment from Atlanta. He stops making the payment, he has no interest in the house anymore, the UCC filing prevents that from happening. So the definition is basically some type of protection for the owners of the panel that it basically would be taken care of financially. Yes, it protects their, their overall interest in the solar panels themselves, but gives them no interest in your home or your property. Good to know. So let me ask this question. Are there any restrictions for people that say live in an HOA from putting panels on their roof? Because obviously there are some uh, CCNRs or you know codes of conduct, if you will, for an area and can solar be excluded? I, I think if, if you're in the knowledge, in the know a little bit with solar in California, California, the state government is very pro-solar. And they have been for a very long time. And I believe it was in 1978, but I, I always forget that date. But there was a law that was passed that said no uh, municipality, government association, homeowners association, or jurisdiction can prevent somebody from accessing the sun for power, for heat, or, or for energy of any kind. What that law does is it prevents a, a homeowners association from saying no solar in our neighborhood. So they can't stop you from putting solar. The next question that I get is, well, can they tell me what roof to put it on? And the law has a section that says the energy efficiency of those panels must be taken into account. So if the front of your house faces south, you're going to get 30% more power than if it faces north. They can't make you put them on the north and incur a 30% larger expense for your solar. Um, so all you have to do is, is prove to your HOA, which is very easy to do, that their recommended changes will cost you more than $2,000 and then they can't implement uh, that recommendation. That's good to know. Uh, I know that I asked that question because I had uh, that question about my own home because I live in an HOA and there was no restriction and I do have panels that are visible from the street. I like to say it 
looks fine to me. But then again, <laughs> I've become more accustomed to solar panels than I think a lot of people had in the past. It's becoming more and more commonplace, if you will, from, from a visual standpoint. One thing that's really important when it comes to the visual standpoint, again, going back to the company that you choose for mm -hmm. installation, um, your company is not required to put conduit on your roof. It's not required to leave gaps. We're able to move and redirect vents. Uh, one thing we do at Sun Power by Sun Solar is make sure that if it is visible, we want the cleanest, most symmetrical, solid shape on your roof possible. So you, you're not necessarily restricted to the way your roof is to have an ugly installation. Yeah, and presentation is important as well. I mean, like anything else, the burgers never come out looking like they do in the pictures. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to go ahead and transition a little bit and ask about, I guess, basic warranties. Are there warranties on panels that are purchased by particular vendors, and are there differences that you've noticed? There, there's very large differences in every warranty on every product you've ever purchased. and. Uh, in solar, it is no exception. There is levels of product and there's levels of warranty protection. Most 25-year warranties on equipment do not cover customary transportation, deinstallation, or reinstallation of broken product. That then falls on the contractor who installed your equipment. If there's no legally binding document saying they're responsible, then you could potentially be charged for those out-of-pocket expenses of uh, customary transportation, removal, and reinstallation of equipment. Most contractors are going to eat that cost year one, year two, year three, because they still want your circle of influence. They want your family, your friends, your coworkers to go solar with them. What we're seeing now is people that have had solar for eight, nine, ten years. That contractor that installed the equipment is now saying, no, you're repair responsibility is with the manufacturer. They do not cover the installation, reinstallation, or shipping. So if you'd like it fixed, you owe us $350. Sun Power is one of the only manufacturers offering parts, labor, and replacement for the full 25 years because of their low failure rates. So that is one of the questions based off the panels based off the manufacturer, based off the installer and the company that does that, these will vary from company yes. to company. So it's important for the listeners of the podcast to do your homework, do your research, get some information, and ask these direct questions so that you can get that information addressed. One thing that I, I really believe in is a, a salesperson can tell you whatever you want to hear. Oh yes, no problem, it's covered for 25 years. Look at the warranty sheet, download the warranty sheet, read the warranty sheet, because at the end of the day, what that salesperson tells you is not binding. It's what agreements are in place when you sign that you will be held to for the next 25 years. So read the warranty sheets. Yeah, that's a very important uh, point to pull out. One question that I was asked is, are solar systems covered under homeowner's insurance generally? Are they required to be covered by homeowner's insurance? When you own your equipment, it's personal property. So you want to make sure that it's been added to your homeowner's insurance as personal property. Some insurance companies are adding it at no charge. Some companies are charging five to six extra dollars a month depending on the size and replacement cost of the system. When you lease your equipment, it's owned by somebody else. 
So they're typically putting an insurance policy on it that covers everything except for uh, malicious intent, damaging your own property on purpose. Yeah, well, that kind of makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> there is some logic and some common sense, I think, when that, that kind of stuff happens. So note to the listeners, <clears throat> excuse me, don't allow your kids to run on the roof and jump all over the panels because that would probably void that, that insurance coverage in general. So we've covered a lot of topics here, but I think we're going to get into the meat and potatoes of what some of these listeners want to hear. And, and that's going to be how home loans are viewing solar and how people that currently have solar on their property may be affected when purchasing property that may have solar on it. And I'm going to discuss based off of loan type and what the considerations are and exactly what the process is that a lender will go through. One thing I want to point out is, is in this section, I'm going to talk about Pace and Hero liens. Pace and Hero liens were pretty popular for a short amount of time in, in our county, and they put a lien on the property based off of tax assessment. So there were financing terms that were put into your overall tax bill, but there were no credit qualifications in order to complete that. And because of that, uh, in order to sell property, those Pacer Hero liens needed to be cleared, no matter the size. So this was a great inhibitor, I believe, of someone being able to clear those liens and sell property. In addition to that, I think it was sold to the customer as being something that was fully tax deductible, but the contractors and those that sold this in this fashion really had no um, way of giving tax advice and they should not have been doing that. And we see this hindsight and it really has hurt some people and it's one of the reasons why it was abolished as a practice in our county. So when you do have a PACE or solar or PACE or hero lien on your property and it was to finance some type of energy improvement, whether it been plumbing, windows, roof, solar, uh, just something that was added, that has to be extinguished. There's no way around it if you're trying to sell real estate. So I just wanted to get that out of the way. The next thing is I want to go ahead and talk specifically about loan types. And I want to talk about how solar is viewed. So the first one to talk about um, is going to be conventional financing and the difference between Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So Fannie Mae will purchase or securitize mortgage loans on properties with solar panels. But they make a distinction between whether or not the solar is owned or whether or not it's being leased or under a power purchase agreement. If the solar panels are leased or owned by a third party, in this case, a UCC filing, right? Yes. Then these are the guidelines that Fannie Mae states. The solar panels may not be included in the appraised value of the property. The property must maintain access to an alternate source of electric power that meets the community standards. So what does that mean? It means you've, you've always got to be connected to the PG&E grid. So you do have some way of receiving power, correct? Yes. So here's where the controversy comes, and I think the way it's not uniformly applied across all banks is how the monthly lease is viewed for qualifying for a home loan. So I'll read what the guideline states, but then there's some subsections here that are very important. And Andrew and I have kind of gone back and forth about this. And it's, it's something that, again, it's going to be interpreted differently from bank to bank. Here's what the guideline says. The monthly lease payment must be included in the debt to income ratio calculation unless the lease is structured to, one, 
provide delivery of a specific amount of energy at a fixed payment during a given period, and have a production agreement guarantee that compensates the borrower on a prorated basis in the event that the solar panels fail to meet the energy output required for the lease of that period. Payments under a power purchase agreement where the payment is calculated solely based on the energy production may be excluded from DTI ratios. So in lender speak, basically if it's a solar lease, the bank will require for the most part, generally applied, that the borrower qualify with that as a monthly obligation because it's something that's going to be a fixed expense to them. If it's a power purchase agreement, it's not wholly unlike a normal utility bill because it can vary based off of production and what they're paying for that cost. So they don't include that in your debt to income ratio. Now, in this agreement for a lease or a power purchase agreement, the solar agreement must include verbiage that states any damage that occurs as a result of installation malfunction, malfacturing defect, or removal of solar panels is the responsibility of the owner of the equipment and the owner must be obligated to repair the damage and return the improvements to its original or prior condition. So for example, sound and white water tightness of the structure itself or the roof and the homeowner um, the, excuse me, the owner of the solar panel agrees to not be named as a lost payee on the property or on the owner's property insurance policy covering the residential structure. And the reason why is because technically speaking, uh, the homeowner doesn't own the equipment, right? Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Um, just on, on go back to the guideline on the lease and mm -hmm. the production guarantee. Um, Something that's very important, and, and I think this is where uh, a lot of lenders stop. They say the monthly lease payment must be included to the debt-to-income ratio calculation, and then they stop right there. Yeah. But it, it continues on. It says, unless the lease is structured to provide delivery of a specific amount of energy at a fixed payment during a given period. So at this point is when I typically get a phone call from a lender uh, underwriting is looking at it and saying, well, we've got to include their $200 a month lease payment and they don't qualify. I said, hang on, I'm going to send you the agreement. And they read the agreement and I can only speak to the SunPower lease agreement. But the SunPower lease agreement has a production guarantee, guaranteed delivery of a minimum amount of energy for a fixed price, and it also has guaranteed reimbursement if that energy is not delivered. So as long as they continue to read down and say provide delivery of a specific amount of energy at a fixed payment during a given period and have a production guarantee that compensates the borrower on a prorated basis in the event the solar panels fail to meet their energy output. That's where the SunPower agreement is then typically not included in the DTI calculation. And that's a big distinguishing factor, but unfortunately, there are several different companies yes. that provided solar and solar agreements. So it's going to be very case-specific. As I've pointed out many times about home loans, it is very customized to the individual borrower's qualifications. Yes. And these are questions and considerations that every listing agreement should at least address by getting a copy of that solar contract as soon as possible. Yes. So let's move on now to the Freddie Mac guidelines. So Freddie Mac says that payments for solar panels subject to a lease agreement, power purchase agreement, or similar type of agreement <clears throat> may be excluded from the monthly debt to income ratio if the lease, 
one provides a delivery a specific amount of energy for an agreed upon payment during a given period and includes a production guarantee. It's the, basically the same verbiage, right? But payments for solar panels subject to a PPA or similar type of agreement may be excluded from the monthly debt to income ratio if it's based off the generation of energy. So if you really are struggling with this, it appears to me as a lender that Freddie Mac is a little bit more lenient on the application of this lease agreement. It doesn't have the other type of verbiage. So again, the suitability of the borrower's ability to purchase property may be also subject to the lender's or the loan officer's application of loan product based off of the need. So moving on, I want to now move to the government insured products. And I'm going to tell you uh, as the podcast listener how um, this has been a challenge for lenders. The first is I want to discuss FHA and USDA. FHA and USDA at this time do not, to my knowledge, have written guidance on how solar panels, the production of those solar panels, the cost of a lease or power purchase agreement or own solar have a net effect on underwriting. The way that it has been applied has been if there is a solar lease that the borrower would qualify with that lease as a monthly obligation because that is an ongoing expense to be taken into consideration. USDA really doesn't say anything and I have not had a USDA one yet that is closed with solar but it is something that will eventually come up and as more guidance comes about then we'll probably release that. I will now transition into the Veterans Administration loan. And this one was kind of surprising, but not surprising. VA loans have among the lowest of all loan types, the lowest amount of default. And I give the credit to the VA in the way that they did this and the reason why they accomplished this is this. The Veterans Administration takes your income gross and subtracts out the expenses that you pay on your paycheck. This includes Social Security, if you pay to a retirement plan, your property tax, I mean your taxes that you pay for state and federal. And then it also has a calculation for utilities. And this utility calculation is taken this way. You take the gross square footage living area of the subject property and you multiply that by 0.14 or 14%. When you take that calculation, you subtract that out from usable expense for monthly income in order to come up with a cost. And they do so because they know that the homeowner is going to incur some utility expense. And that's just the figure that they use at this time. So for further guidance, I you know, asked the question of senior underwriting. So if they already have a calculation in there for utilities of 14%, of the square footage, do you also have to now name the lease agreement cost or monthly obligation to that lease as an additional expense? In my mind, it was almost double hitting the veteran with a cost. And the response was, no, we will apply the 14% of the gross living square footage cost or the solar monthly lease payment, whichever is greater, so it won't be hitting them twice. And to me, that was probably the most logical answer that I had heard, and it seems to be probably the most effective answer. So with this said, 
This podcast is really designed, I believe, to educate not only the consumer, but industry professionals, people that are out in the, in the public eye, talking with consumers, potentially listing property, and buyers that are looking at buying property. At the end of the day, as I stated just a couple minutes ago, every loan file is very specific to the buyer. So depending upon your loan type, if you require financing, you're going to need to apply the solar um, adjustments to your loan package based off of loan type. And then also get as much information as soon as you get into contract or even prior to about solar that's on the property if it exists. And that way you're gonna have the best chance for success, a smooth close, and an opportunity to take advantage of what's on the property in the case of solar benefits and energy efficiency. So we've covered a lot of, a lot of topics here, Andrew. Is there anything that I didn't cover that you think would be important for us to discuss? Just really getting, I, we've covered it, but it, it needs reinforcing is getting educated because not all solar is created equal. Think of anything you've ever bought before. Not all computers are the same. You might not get the job done that you need done. Not all vehicles are the same. You might have two identical trucks and one's $15,000 less and you need to haul an RV up and over the grapevine. Well, that V6 isn't gonna cut it. You need the V8. Uh, so really getting educated on your equipment before you make your financial decision. It's more important to know what you're buying than it is how you're paying for it. Absolutely. Once you know what you're buying, then figure out how to pay for it. Yeah, no, that's, that's good advice. And I think that hindsight is, is that if a property doesn't have solar and you're looking to go solar, that applies more directly. If you're buying a property and it already has solar on there, you're going to have some other specific considerations. And with your loan professional and your real estate agent there to protect you and help you, you should go through some calculations to see if it's the best buy. Yes. Because ultimately, you're not forced to buy it. No. Nope. <laughs> you're offering on property and you're making an educated decision as an adult to purchase real estate. And if solar's on there and it's a net benefit to you, move forward. If it's not, make the consideration and consider it based off of some solid advice. Andrew, thank you so much. I've learned a ton here. It's actually a lot of fun talking to people that have expertise in areas that I don't have. So if you guys have questions and would like more information, I highly, highly recommend whether or not you're using Andrew for solar education um, or product, he's very, very good at what he does and has uh, been a tremendous resource. So what is the best number I should give them to reach you? 661. 2410702 they can reach me directly at that number perfect thank you again andrew and have a great day thanks